0: Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters, get ready for an exciting episode as we head to Trinidad and Tobago for the Keeping History Above Water Conference. This beautiful island nation is famous for creating the limbo dance and steel drums. The event brought together international speakers and experts to discuss the challenges faced by island communities in the face of climate change. The ultimate goal of the conference was to advance the resilience and long-term preservation of Trinidad and Tobago's historic sites and cultural resources, which are increasingly impacted by climate change. We were joined by citizens from Trinidad and Tobago, Montserrat, St. Martin, Cuba, as well as cultural heritage experts from the United States. Islands are particularly... Particularly vulnerable to climate change, and we'll be learning about the innovative steps these communities are taking to keep history above water. During my visit, I went on some fascinating field trips and had the opportunity to learn about the people and culture of Trinidad and Tobago. Stick around until the end of this episode for an interview with one of my tour guys, Mr. Charles, from the Paramin region of the island. Mr. Charles was an incredible storyteller, and I'll also include one of his stories at the end of the podcast. Plus, I had the pleasure of interviewing the U.S. ambassador to Trinidad and Tobago, the first U.S. ambassador on America Adapts. To get this episode started, let's chat with Lisa Craig of The Craig Group to set the stage for our journey to Trinidad and Tobago and the conference. Throughout this episode, you'll hear some of the sounds from my time on the island including the amazing steel drum performances that originated in Trinidad and Tobago. So let's dive in and learn how these island communities are adapting to climate change. Hey, Adapters, we're kicking off this exciting episode with Lisa Craig of The Craig Group. Hi, Lisa. Welcome back to the podcast.
1: Hey, Doug. Nice to talk with you again.
0: For those who aren't familiar with the episode that you did with me, remind us again what you do with The Craig Group.
1: I had spent some time working with the city of Annapolis, developing a resilience strategy based in the protection of cultural heritage, basically historic sites, using FEMA-based approach to develop hazard mitigation planning and, and looking at adaptation strategies. During that time, we actually hosted a Keeping History Above Water conference. And so as a consultant, what I've now found extremely useful for historic communities is to begin planning for climate resilience or climate adaptation. As we see the change in climate impacting communities, historic coastal communities, in particular with sea level rise, with extreme storm events, with increasingly uh, significant disasters, I specialize and my team specializes in working in those communities to identify vulnerabilities, to develop uh, response plans, mitigation plans, resilience plans, adaptation plans, whatever. Whatever you want to call it. And then basically to assess the community's values for historic preservation, for history, for culture, and really what do they want to see in terms of adaptation strategies? Are they structural? Are they nature-based? What works in their community for their particular environment and for their historic assets?
0: We've been talking about this for a long time. We're going to Trinidad and Tobago. I'm so excited about this. But first, let's ground some people in what we're trying to do here. What is Keeping History Above Water?
1: Well, Keeping History Above Water is now entering, in essence, what we are looking at as the 10th iteration of this conference, this initiative. Sometimes it's a conference. Sometimes it's a workshop. Sometimes it's just a presentation. But Keeping History Above Water was developed by the Newport Restoration Foundation back in 2016 and hosted first in Newport, Rhode Island. And the concept there was to bring together heritage specialists and scientists and government officials, residents, those who were directly impacted or had expertise as it related to climate change and climate adaptation, specifically for historic communities. Uh, Since that time, one of the most recent ones I was involved in was one in Nantucket in June of 2019. And again, you'll remember you did the same podcast interviews in St. Augustine when the the conference was hosted there. So what we're doing is we're taking that framework of bringing together all of those experts, talking about heritage, talking about heritage talking about culture and taking it to Trinidad and Tobago so we can help that community, specifically the National Trust, Trinidad and Tobago, as they are moving forward with their resilience and adaptation planning for their cultural heritage sites.
0: So you've done a lot of work in the South and along the Eastern Seaboard on adapting these historic communities to climate change, but you just mentioned Trinidad and Tobago. So why are we going to Trinidad and Tobago? Why did that become the site for keeping history above water?
1: You know, it's interesting. Shouldn't it really be a global initiative? Climate change has global impacts. It's not just tied to the United States. It's not tied to any one community. When I was in Nantucket, we were doing a Keeping History Above Water uh, workshop. And at that time, there was some colleagues that were from the University of Florida, and they talked about this work in the Caribbean. They talked about the fact that Trinidad and Tobago was one of those places that had a very significant impact in terms of sea level rise, erosion, climate change was impacting their historic built environment. And the National Trust Trinidad and Tobago was at that time looking for funding, but certainly identifying the need for a resilience plan as a priority. Because we had been Pretty successful with this community engagement process using keeping history above water, using our community values assessment tools. We thought this might be a good opportunity to take it away from mainland and see if it would apply in other island communities. I think that was what the opportunity presented itself to be when we were working in Nantucket. We're dealing with the National Historic Landmark Island community taking those same strategies for adaptation and seeing if it could work for historic sites in Trinidad and Tobago. So working with the University of Florida, making it through the pandemic, we managed to come out the other side with a project still intact and an opportunity to work with the National Trust, Trinidad and Tobago and its partners.
0: Okay, Lisa. So why are we partnering? Why did you reach out to the podcast to cover this conference?
1: You know, Doug, We got such a good response in St. Augustine to the podcast. I just had to do it again. I mean, podcasts are an effective tool. It's not a boring 200-page report. It's not something that sits buried in an appendices on a website. Really, it's alive, and it can continue to be shared, and people will find interesting voices being represented from any community that is participating in it. So I think podcasts are a really effective tool. It's, to me, it's a must-have in your communications toolkit if you're talking talking about climate adaptation or climate planning. And it was just a natural go-to for me to contact you and say, listen, we need to share some voices from the community and from the experts. So how about coming along to Port of Spain and joining us?
0: It wasn't a hard sell. And I like your thinking. I just like to throw into it. And I, I like to say that it's a, it's a nice way for a conference to live way past when the actual event occurred. And you're sort of expanding exponentially. In, in some ways, the number of people who attend the conference because they're hearing a lot of the highlights and a lot of the guests there. So yeah, I, I do appreciate people like you who recognize the value of podcast and getting these messages out. So Lisa, I'm going to have you back on at the end of the episode after we go down to Trinidad and Tobago and then afterwards, because we're going to do a bit of a wrap up. So I'll see you down there in Trinidad and Tobago and don't forget your sunscreen.
1: Looking forward to it. We'll see you there.
0: Hey, adapters. I'm back and I'm with
1: Sherry Ann
2: Pascal. I'm a tour guide.
0: (laughs) Okay, so what do you do as a tour guide? How is it the island and who are you giving tours to?
2: Well, I do tours all over Trinidad and Tobago because, of course, it's a republic, Twin Island Republic, that is. So I find myself going from north to south, east to west, it doesn't matter, sharing the cultures of Trinidad and Tobago.
0: All right, so that's one of the reasons I'm interviewing you is I want to just ground people on the basics of Trinidad and Tobago because I've been talking to people about cultural history and such, but let's just get some fundamental facts here. How many people live in Trinidad and Tobago?
2: 1.3 million people.
0: Okay, people don't realize but I mean it's Trinidad and Tobago. Tell us a little bit about that. There's a, a second island.
3: How
2: are the islands different? All right, so historically, we are quite different. Trinidad is a mix of African, Indian, Spanish, Syrians, Lebanese, while Tobago mainly are descendants of people who were enslaved Africans.
0: Okay, tell me a little bit about the economy. What are people doing here? Oil is a big part of the island. Just elaborate on that.
2: All right, so Trinidad... And Tobago is essentially an oil and gas based economy. So we depend heavily on that. However, tourism is something that we are definitely getting into and most people when they think about Tourism, they tend to focus their attention on Tobago because it has the sun, sea, and sand factor. However, because of our cultural mix, because of all these various peoples in Trinidad, we find ourselves selling the various aspects of Trinidad culture. So it's not just carnival, it's pagua, it's the festival of lights, all the things that was brought here by all the people that settled in Trinidad.
0: So Carnival, you- in America most of us think of Brazil but it's actually a really big deal here in Trinidad and Tobago and I think some of its origins are here?
2: Yes, so we consider ourselves to be one of the oldest countries that celebrate the mass as we call it and that was because of the of population that took place in 1783 that brought a number of Catholics to Trinidad. So before they entered Lent, what they would do is have these mask balls and they would put on costumes and so it's. Started with four days of celebration and then they would enter into Lent by having Ash Wednesday. Now what makes our mass front maybe from brazil is that it's all inclusive it does not matter what's your size it does not matter what's your age it does not matter what you look like it's all about everyone enjoying it so you don't have to go to a school to learn the dance it's all part of our culture and we embrace all cultures and all peoples when it comes to carnival
0: All right, this might be a little bit tough to describe, but geographically, this is a big island compared to other islands in the Caribbean, and where are we located? Just give us some idea of how Trinidad and Tobago is sort of a different island system in the Caribbean.
2: All right, so when you think about Miami, the Keys, so you have the Keys up in the north, and Trinidad is the last island that is closest to South America. As a matter of fact, we're just seven miles away from South America. So we kind of consider ourselves, you know, the jewel On a chain, essentially, that pendant. So we are the last one. So on our east coast, there's no landmass between us and Africa. And on the west coast, on either end, you have Venezuela, which we are just seven miles away from. And then we have Tobago, just on the northeastern side. And you have all the islands going up until you get to the Keys. We have what is called... Island life and continental life, because we were once part of South America.
0: Okay, tell me a little bit about, and because you're not obviously going to be able to say all of it, but the wildlife, uh, when I associate islands, it doesn't necessarily have all the things that, like, let's say, South America has and Central America, but you actually do have quite a few different things here.
2: All right, so... This is when we talk about our continental life, and that is what makes us different from the other islands. We were once part of South America. As a matter of fact, there's a school of thought that we are like the spur end of the Andes Mountains. So our flora and fauna is rich and diverse. So, for example, you have over 700 species of butterflies, over 400 species of birds, 18 different types of hummingbirds. We have 48 different species of snakes. Four of them are venomous. We also have the loudest creature other than the blue whale. We have the howler monkeys and so on here. So our diversity is simply because we were once connected to South America.
0: Last question. Do you have a favorite spot on the island?
2: (laughs) Now, that is a good question. My favorite spot would be the village I grew up in. It's a village on the north coast called Blanchiches. So on our north coast, you have the Caribbean Sea. And in that very mountainous area... You have many waterfalls. So I find myself doing hikes to various waterfalls, and my favorite being Avocar in the village of Blanchiches. We have mermaid pools. You have these wonderful spots of greenery and beautiful turquoise colored waters in our rivers. So, yeah, for me, it is that nature part of us in the village I grew up in called Blanchiches.
0: Thanks for joining the podcast.
2: Ah, You're so welcome. I'm so glad I was able to share a little something about us.
0: Hey, Adapters. I'm back. I'm with...
4: Margaret McDowell. What do you do here? I'm the chair of the National Trust that's hosting the conference.
0: Tell us a bit about the National Trust. What do you do?
4: Okay. Well, we are supposed to be promoting heritage, but that is all tangible heritage, both built and natural heritage.
0: So what would you say your role is as chair? What what are your responsibilities? Well,
4: we don't have many staff members, so... All of the council members all work. <laughs> so I am supposedly the chair, but I'm also, I'm an urban planner, so I do any of the urban planning work that has to be done, and I'm, and because of my age, you know, I'm the mentor. So I'm the old grandmother mentor type person.
0: Oh, that's funny. So urban planning, that's your background. I've had conversations with people here from Trinidad and Tobago. Is there a tradition of urban planning in Trinidad and Tobago?
4: Not really. There are a lot of planners, but many of us, there is a local, the local university has started to train planners. Um, and so we now have a lot more planners than we have. We are around, but we are not really um, very well remembered until there's a problem. We tend to clean up.
0: So what are some of the cultural resources at risk of climate change internet in
4: Trinidad and Tobago? Okay, well, first of all, and that's why this conference, most of our treasures are on the coast because that's where most of us live. You know, we keep our hills for enjoyment, etc. and people are, are starting to live on the hills, but they're very steep and there's a lot of erosion, so that most people tend to settle in the coast. And, of course, all or, most of our major buildings are in the coast. And, of course, a lot of our lands, our marine environment is of course, coast. And so it's we're very susceptible to sea level rise in particular.
0: So who are some of the partners that you work with on these issues?
4: Okay, well, now we have this wonderful grant from the U.S. Ambassadors Fund for Cultural Heritage. And we're working with the University of Florida, who employed the Craig Group, also out of Florida, or well, all over America. And uh, they are working with us to do a lot of research, we're actually doing survey work because a lot of times we talk a lot, but we don't really understand what we're doing. So they're here doing quite a lot of surveying and giving us some models so that we can see what would happen at different levels of sea level rise so that we can make decisions as to whether we have to do some kind of adaptation, whether we're going to abandon some of our heritage or what we're going to do.
0: Okay, do you feel that... At large, the people of Trinidad and Tobago uh, understand what's happening with climate change on the island.
4: Now, yes. In the last few years, we've had unexplained flooding. We've had much more rain than we usually had. We are having, um, you know, major problems with the, our wetlands. Our, some of our coastal areas are disappearing, yes, particularly in the southern part of Trinidad and Tobago, and, and a little bit in Tobago, but mainly Trinidad. We've had major, major land loss. So yes, people are beginning to understand.
0: Okay, so you had mentioned you got this ambassador's grant to work on this, but more broadly, this is a Keeping History Above Water conference. Why work on these issues now?
4: Well... Now is as good a time as any. Well, we got the grant, but in addition, we were getting very concerned. We have several properties all over. Well, Port of Spain is is our capital, and our Port of Spain is right on the coast. It is a port city, and therefore, many of our major buildings. So we started with the buildings. We also have in the southern part of Trinidad, there's this very sad picture of a, of a statue sort of, collapsing into the sea which is often used. And so we recognized that it was no use just listing buildings and being very passive. We had to be very active. And that's why we're doing this.
0: Okay, so we've seen quite a few presentations. Is there anything new that you've learned?
4: Oh yes. Oh my goodness. Well I was I just came out of the the presentation on the coral reefs and I thought that was tremendous. And it reminded me again that our coral reefs and our mangroves help to protect our coast. And I kept thinking about, well, we have a little island that National Trust manages. And I was thinking, you know, we were thinking of starting to create reefs. And what I was hearing is, yes, you can actually start to grow your own reefs. So uh, that was something that really impressed me. Every single one of the presentations so far, I've gotten something. So I'm very excited so far.
0: Okay, so you have a team there at the Trust. Let's say next Monday, what are you guys going to do next? This must give you a lot of energy and ideas.
4: Oh, my all kinds of things. We only have five heritage professionals that are doing this kind of work. We have others. We have the people in, in property development and management. We have the people who are doing tours. But the ones that are going to be most affected are the heritage professionals who are they are looking in particular at at what sites should be listed, what sites we should monitor, so that I think we're going to have a little powwow on Monday to see how we are doing and what we can now do and what is the first thing we want to do. And I'm sure we'll have a lot of ideas.
0: Okay. If you could, and this is going to be difficult, but if someone was visiting Trinidad and Tobago and you could recommend just one cultural resource to visit, what would it be?
4: Oh, my word. This is difficult. I would probably recommend our Nelson Island because Nelson Island has a little bit of everything about our history, starting from the time before slavery with the First Peoples coming through, and then the slaves and, and a lot of the buildings and the, and the rock structures were done by them. And then it was the place where most of the indentured Indians, when they came into the country, they paused there. We've had even the, the Jews were incarcerated there, the labor leaders were incarcerated there. So we have all kinds of types of history. So I would suggest Nelson Island.
0: Well, thanks for participating in the podcast.
4: Yes, right. This is great. I'm glad you're doing this, and I hope you continue to come up with some very cool ideas for us.
5: Thank you. Hey, Adapters, I'm with Martin Perschler, Program Director of the U.S. Ambassadors Fund for Cultural Preservation at the U.S. Department of State. All right. So, why are you here at this conference? I'm here at this conference to observe and to participate. This conference, "Keeping History Above Water," Trinidad and Tobago, is a conference that is supported in part by a grant that we awarded the the National Trust of Trinidad and Tobago. Tell me a bit about that grant. What is that program? Sure. The program, the U.S. Ambassadors Fund for Cultural Preservation, it is a program that we run through our embassies in over 140 countries around the world where we award grants for the preservation of cultural heritage, anything from the restoration of historic buildings to the documentation of endangered languages. So what was attractive when they applied for this grant, this Keeping History Above Water model to you? Well, what was really attractive to us was the progressive thinking that went into the, into the proposal. Usually we are responding to the damage in the aftermath of disasters like typhoons, hurricanes, and earthquakes. And what was really intriguing about the National Trust's proposal, they were wanting to get out in front. They were wanting to conduct a systematic survey and study of some of their heritage sites and the potential climate change impacts uh, that they might have to address in the future. And we really loved it because it is so much more cost-effective to prepare for disaster and to mitigate risk in advance than to repair or clean up afterwards.
0: Okay, we've seen quite a few presentations here. What stood out for you? How did this fit in to why you awarded the grant in the first place?
5: Well, you know, what really stood out for me was the intersection of natural heritage and cultural heritage. You know, that the impacts are... Serious and potentially devastating and life-altering, whether we're talking about coral reefs or we're talking about historic districts. One of my takeaways is that it will be important for us, number one, to think holistically whenever we're approached with a project idea that involves the conservation or the protection of heritage in an area where climate change impacts are already being observed or where those impacts are imminent, and also to consider the role that nature, that things like mangroves and grasses can play, in the protection of of our cultural heritage, our sites.
0: So there was this whole notion of this keeping history above water as a model that they applied for this grant. But why did Trinidad and Tobago get it? I mean, they were the partner here. That's a big, important part of how you accept it, right?
5: How did they get it? Well, you know, they applied for it, obviously. And what was really appealing to us, it was really the first application we'd received where anyone was wanting to be proactive. And we thought, wow, this is based on a time-tested model for a conference about climate change and cultural heritage that has been taking place in the United States for years. And this was the first opportunity for us to support it overseas in a country where our program is active. And I'm so excited about the possibility of being able to use this as a model For conferences in other parts of the world, whether it's elsewhere in the Caribbean or perhaps in the Pacific Islands, or maybe even in coastal communities in South Africa or in South America, to take this on the road as a way of helping raise awareness of the threats to culture and to cultural heritage that we're facing.
0: Okay, on that note, it's still a pretty competitive grant program. There's not enough money to fund everyone. What advice would you give out there? I mean, you just mentioned some countries that you'd like to potentially see this in, but people out there listening, it has to start somewhere. What groups need to really think about it? How should they partner when they even think about submitting a grant proposal?
5: That's a great question. Thanks for asking it. You know, our program runs on an annual cycle, so we receive applications and award grants one time per year, but we encourage any organization that is interested in applying to start the process early and to contact our public diplomacy teams at our embassies because often... Strong applications require several iterations and a lot of back and forth. Our embassies are our contacts in country, but embassies reach out to us in Washington, D.C., too, if they have questions about proposals and whether proposed activities are something that we can support. In a nutshell, my advice is for interested applicants to start early and touch base with our embassies and not necessarily wait for us to put out the call, but to consider it a continual process. What stood out about just being Internet in Tobago for you? Anything unique or you learned Well, one of the things I love is how friendly and inviting people are here. You know, I go back to my ride from the airport to the conference at the very beginning and how the entire ride my driver was you know, telling me where to go, what to do, followed up with advice via text. And just at every turn, I felt very welcome in addition to the beautiful scenery, the ocean views, the the countryside, the culture, the food, obviously. For the first time in the Caribbean, really, for me, I'm really glad I started here. I think that's the thing with the taxi drivers. I was told I have
0: to go to a dozen different places. He took me. I got in at midnight, and he took me to some places. I haven't been able to visit any of them. I feel bad, but I, I got the same thing. They were very friendly and giving you
5: a quick cultural history. Well, you know (laughs) what? I don't feel so bad because now I have a list of places to hit the next time I come here. And that's what I am going to leave with is the intention of coming back, maybe for work, maybe as a visitor, as a tourist. I spent most of my time here in Port of Spain, but for a small island, it sure has a lot to offer. And so I'm looking forward to at some time exploring more. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me.
0: Hey Daptors, I'm back and I'm with Dr. Clary Larkin. Hi Clary, welcome to the podcast.
6: Hi Doug, it's so great to be here.
0: Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you based out of?
6: I'm the director of the historic preservation program at the University of Florida. Before I became director, I practiced as an architect, mostly working on historic buildings and in historic communities throughout Virginia and New York City. And then in 2015, I came to Florida for my PhD in urban planning and historic preservation. And really, since then, I've been very interested in working with underserved communities. And a lot of them are really dealing with a lot of environmental justice and climate change issues.
0: All right, let's talk a little bit about the work that you do there at the University of Florida. And, you know, you have the historic preservation team and so doing field visits here in Trinidad and Tobago, right?
6: Yeah, we have a grant from the Department of State Ambassadors Fund for cultural heritage preservation, to really assess the historic sites that are stewarded by the National Trust of Trinidad and Tobago, and to really look at how vulnerable these sites are for sea level rise, flooding, and climate change. So we've been visiting Nelson Island, which is a historic site that has been used for immigration, for prison, and the sites downtown in Port of Spain, the historic train station, the St. Vincent Jetty Lighthouse, and a historic fort right adjacent to both of those other two sites.
0: Okay, so some of these site visits, without going into too much detail, what were some of the findings about the conditions and vulnerability of these resources?
6: Well, I think it's really interesting to think of them in two separate groups. So Nelson Island is offshore and really pretty isolated. You have to get on a boat in order to get there and visit the site. It's a really great place with a lot of history for Trinidad and Tobago. But really, some of the issues that we see there are not so much of the flooding, but more thinking about coastal erosion and use of sustainable materials on the island, Whereas in Port of Spain, downtown, with the train station and the lighthouse and the fort, all three of these sites are really clustered together on the harbor in Port of Spain. And if you think about the way that Trinidad as an island is pretty mountainous, these sites are located basically at the base of the mountains of Trinidad. So when they start getting all of these storms and more frequent rainstorms that they've been getting, the water just runs down the mountains, down the streets, and really sort of puddles up by the train station, by the fort, and and by the lighthouse. I think this is really an excellent example of how our infrastructure for stormwater hasn't really been able to keep up with the constant changing and increased flooding from rainstorms, and also that Trinidad, like many places, has a lot of asphalt and concrete and what we call non-permeable surfaces. So the water just runs on top of it, and it doesn't actually go into the ground.
0: There are other Caribbean nations here, but what are the challenges and opportunities of conducting historic preservations in a developing country like Trinidad and Tobago and some of these other countries that are here?
6: Yeah, well, I think what's really exciting about being here with other countries in the Caribbean is that this is really the first time that the U.S. Department of State has funded a project for the Cultural Heritage Fund. We're hoping to really build some relationships and partnerships with other Caribbean islands here and really think about how we can learn from each other and provide a knowledge exchange. Every island in the Caribbean is really facing similar challenges, whether it's stormwater infrastructure, whether it's rising seas, and they all have really proud heritage, both tangible, like in the forms of buildings and sites, and intangible, such as traditions and crafts and trades and knowledge. And so it's really a great opportunity for us all to learn from each other and to share best practices for resilience and historic preservation.
0: So do you have any advice? You've been talking to the team here. They're all very excited, but I think going forward that coming out of this conference, just any advice from your own experiences doing these things?
6: Well, Well, I think one of the challenges that we've realized with this project is that we really have to look at resilience at multiple scales. I've already mentioned things like coastal erosion at Nelson Island and things like stormwater infrastructure for downtown Port of Spain. Those are large scale sorts of nature-based design, landscape, and engineering problems that will need to be addressed at those larger scales. But I think we're also looking at How does flooding and water really affect building materials? How does it affect the building and its use? What happens when people are stuck in traffic in downtown Port of Spain for an hour because the highway is flooded? So we have to start thinking about resilience at multiple scales. So the site scale, the neighborhood scale, the building scale and the material scale.
0: You are unique in that you've actually attended previous Keeping History Above Water conferences. Not a lot of people here have actually done that. Tell us a bit about what you thought of here, of the one here in Trinidad and Tobago, and the previous ones that you have attended.
6: Sure. So, Keeping History Above Water has really established itself as a a great regular event for those practicing in the realm of heritage and resilience. And for those who want to learn more, I attended the one in St. Augustine as well as the more recent one in Charleston. And I think something that really strikes me as a a practicing preservation architect and an educator is that a lot of places are battling these same challenges and having a keeping history above water conference is a real place for everyone to come together and to learn from each other. I think what's different here is that this is the first time that keeping history above water has been outside of the United States. And not only that, in the Caribbean, we have heard from some people in the Caribbean about projects that are happening throughout the region. And I hope that it's just a little bit of the door opening so that we can start hearing more about what's happening across the Caribbean region and the multiple countries that are involved in resilience in the Caribbean.
0: Before I let you go, they've arranged some fantastic field trips for us. Tell us a bit about your sea turtle trip.
6: Oh, the sea turtle trip was amazing, and I highly recommend it for anyone visiting Trinidad. We went to watch the leatherbacks create their nest and lay their eggs. And it's a bit of a, a trip across the island and through the mountains, and you go at night. And, you know, you have the the red light flashlight so you don't disturb the turtles. But it's really such a great way to understand that we are sharing the island and the world with nature and with other living beings. And it really sort of brought to mind that there's a good reason why we need to be resilient and why we need to think about nature-based solutions and building with vernacular materials because we really aren't the only living creatures on this earth. So I highly recommend that for anyone who visits Trinidad.
0: Fantastic. All right, Clary, thanks for joining the podcast.
6: Thanks so much for participating with us, Doug. We really appreciate it.
7: Hey, Adapters, I'm talking with Kishan Kumar Singh of the Ministry of Planning and Development at the government of and Tobago. All right, tell us a bit about what that means. What do you do there? Okay, I'm head of multilateral environmental agreements, which means that I coordinate the implementation of the various conventions, environmental conventions that we are signatory to, as well as coordinate negotiations, at the various conventions that are held under the auspices of these various agreements.
0: I really enjoyed your presentations, and I know we can't cover that much ground, but can you give some highlights
7: just for my listeners? Well, the thing is that climate change is real. It's here. It's not ahead of us. It's above us. We need very ambitious action globally and nationally as a small island developing state to not only mitigate against the Effects of climate change will certainly reduce our carbon footprint because we are an oil and gas producing country and we have a relatively high per capita emission of greenhouse gases. And therefore, climate action is at the top of the agenda that needs no urgent attention more than ever.
0: So you highlighted the notion of build back better. I want you to explain what you meant. And you also talked about engineering being part of the solution or it could be part of the problem.
7: Yes, well, with every manifestation of a climate extreme or a climate risk, there is always some residual loss and some residual damage and the need to build back to some state of functionality. But in that building back, it must be done in a way that takes into consideration the return of the climate risk that caused the problem in the first place. And therefore, the need to build back better or more climate resilient reconstruction is what is required. Because if we build back the same way, these extreme weather events, these climate risks are going to get more and more frequent and more and more severe and more and more intense with more and more loss and damage. And therefore integrating climate resiliency into building back better is obviously a no-brainer. But what is more important is in building back better, the engineering solutions that rectify the problems that are caused and need to take into consideration the climate risks into their designs. Otherwise, we risk exacerbating or increasing vulnerability to these same risks going forward. So for example, there is a road in the east coast of us uh, called the Manzanilla Maya Road that borders the, the Atlantic Ocean, and the largest freshwater swamp in the country and one of the larger ones in the Caribbean. And the geomorphology of the sandbank that keeps the seawater out is one that is dynamic in itself, upon which the road has been built. And therefore, when the swamp floods out, it goes out to sea. It's a natural flow, it's a sheet flow, and it washes away the road. It has been happening. It has happened three times in my lifetime, with each time with increasing return, periods of return, and each time we have built it back the same way the consequences that is going to wash away again and again. Now, if it's going to be built back better, then any engineering design must take into consideration the dynamic flow and exchange of water between the, the swamp and the Atlantic Ocean and the geomorphology of the sandbank itself. So if that is not taken into consideration, then the engineering designs themselves can be a liability and can cost more in, in, in the long term to rectify these impacts and therefore you risk increasing vulnerability, you risk maladapting to these impacts and that is why I, I said any engineering design must take into consideration the climate risks and perhaps add a 10% conservative measure in, in those designs to, to cater for any uncertainty in the, in the climate risks themselves. Okay, you've done a lot of international work. How does
0: Trinidad and Tobago compare, and let's talk about this climate adaptation planning to some of these other countries that you've been exposed to?
7: Our approach to adaptation is one of a pathways approach, which means that we assess the climate risks, we formulate intervention options to reduce or mitigate or eliminate those risks, we implement and then we evaluate and assess the efficacy and then through an iterative process continue to build and build back better, if I, if I have to use that phrase again, while at the same time looking at long-term adaptation to climate change in the ultimate objective. And it differs from many other countries that have actually started their adaptation planning through a project-based approach and planning for adaptation 50, 60 years from now. The inherent risk there, because of the rate of climate change and because of the uncertainty in the eventual impacts and the, the temperature at which the You know, the end of the century will settle at means that you're playing a bit of a a Russian roulette and investing and getting locked into technologies that may not necessarily be as effective as we would do through a pathways approach where you look and you identify risks, you respond to the risks, you revisit when the risks manifest themselves again. That does two things largely it allows you time to fix any mistakes or any miscalculations that you would have had in assessing those risks. And two, it reduces the capital costs if you truly integrate climate change international development. Climate finance is an issue throughout the world for the developing world and for small island developing states in particular. We just negotiated successfully the establishment of a loss and damage fund and funding arrangements as part of the outcomes of COP27. Uh, that will take some time to be established as well. But a fund finance does not make and therefore capitalizing the fund in the way that it needs to be capitalized to effectively respond to climate damage and loss and damage uh, is a huge undertaking. So through the Pathways approach, we believe that uh, building climate resiliency, truly integrating climate change, the national development paradigm, because we view climate change as a national development issue, then it builds resiliency over time with long-term adaptation in in sight and in focus, and at the same time minimizes the capital costs uh, that you would normally incur or estimate as a result of discrete project-based adaptation for long-term climate change impacts. Okay, and you also talked about national security in climate change. From the perspective of
0: Trinidad and Tobago, what could be some national security issues that this country has to deal with with climate change?
7: We have fairly large communities uh, that depend on the natural environment for livelihoods so that they harvest fish and shellfish uh, that they sell, uh, and they live off of it. Uh, the impacts of climate change can actually see some of these amenities, some of these resources being decimated, uh, and the population's de- decreased, so there's increasing competition for diminishing resource. That will obviously give rise to unemployment, loss of livelihoods at some point, and therefore the... Increase in poverty. Wherever there's an increase in poverty, there's an increase in frustration and human, there's an increase in crime. It can also lead to internal migration where people leave their traditional environment to go to more urban areas to seek employment and therefore it adds competition for employment. It can also lead to opportunities for illegitimate ways of earning a living that may not necessarily be conducive to civil stability and therefore it can pose a national security risk if not. Not checked and if not really kept an eye on. And that is why we have developed a just transition of the workforce policy, not only to respond to the unintended consequences of the labor force largely employed in the oil and gas industry, because we are an oil and gas economy uh, largely based on petrochemicals and oil and gas production, not only the unintended consequences of moving to low carbon economy, but also looking at the impacts of climate change on livelihoods and lives and how that also meshes with the issue of no one being left behind and tying in some of the ideals and the goals and the targets of the sustainable development goals into that planning structure. So we see climate change as a truly national development issue in all its facets, not only infrastructure development, not only agricultural development, but certainly in the socioeconomic sphere and the human systems, including
0: crime. Okay, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Hey, Adapters. I'm here with Ambassador Candace Bond.
8: Good morning. How are you, Doug?
0: I'm very excited. This is my first ambassador that I'm interviewing, so thanks for taking the time to talk to America DApps.
8: Absolutely. It's a pleasure to do so.
0: So, how is the U.S. Embassy here in Trinidad and Tobago supporting climate adaptation efforts for the island?
8: So one of the things that we're doing is that we have the Ambassadors Fund. Actually, we have donated $200,000 in grant monies to help preserve the culture and heritage sites of Trinidad and Tobago, which are so important, because these heritage sites are, in fact, impacted by climate change. And so we're helping to mitigate that erosion and make sure that we are preserving the rich culture and heritage of the country.
0: So you're here at this conference. Are you encouraged by these efforts?
8: absolutely encouraged by these efforts. This is really a critical part of diplomacy, ensuring that we are supporting our friends and supporting their cultural heritage, because after all, we have a large shared diaspora. There are over 250,000 Trinbergonians in the United States, and so we consider them a large and vital part of our country, and then also this peer-to-peer ties and people-to-people ties are really incredibly important for us. So this is what we're here to support.
0: So can you see Trinidad and Tobago being a leader in climate adaptation in the Caribbean area?
8: Absolutely, they already are. A number of their ministries are dedicated to mitigating climate change. And so we're actually working closely with them and also through a multi-agency effort to support those efforts, not only for Trinidad and Tobago, but you'll see my counterparts in the State Department and my colleagues that were doing this throughout the Caribbean.
0: And can you tell us some highlights of your experiences at Carnival?
8: Oh, absolutely. At Carnival was incredible. It was definitely the biggest party of my life that lasted for six weeks. It was fantastic. So here, when you participate in Carnival, they say, play mas. So I played Moss and had a costume. And, you know, I participated in all the FETs. They have all these unique pan yards across the country. So they call it crawling across the pan yards. And so had a chance to really see how the music and culture really is embedded in the youth of Trinidad and Tobago. And so it's just a really important cultural, magical, magical moment. And it happens every single year. So I encourage everyone to come and celebrate with the Trinbagonians at at Carnival Time. It's really spectacular. You know, Mardi Gras is amazing, but this is one that is completely participatory. And it was a beautiful, beautiful event.
0: Thank you, Madam Ambassador, for joining the podcast.
8: Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much, Doug. Thank you for being here to support this work. Hey, actors, I'm
3: back, and I'm with... I'm Dr. Jay Haviser, director of the St. Martin Archaeological Center in St. Martin, the Dutch Caribbean. So what is the group you work with and what do you do? Well, I actually have three foundations. I am the director of the St. Martin Archaeological Center, which is in St. Martin, the Dutch Caribbean. I also started the Bonaire Archaeological Institute on the island of Bonaire and the SEBA. Archaeological Center on Saba. So on three of the Dutch islands, I have these foundations that I've started that focus on youth and heritage. However, I've been the archaeologist for the Dutch Caribbean for 40 years. And before that, I actually did quite some work in the Virgin Islands. So I've been doing it a long time. My university affiliation has been with Leiden University in the Netherlands, so it's where I got my doctorate in 1987. And the whole concept that I'm trying to bring to this gathering is that... That created these three foundations on Bonaire, Seve, and Saint Martin, emphasizing the need to sort of stimulate and inspire young local Antillean youth, 14 to 18 years old, to consider not just the sciences as careers and heritage sciences in particular, but an awareness of the value and the importance of doing heritage research. Because my goal, and as I presented in this conference, was that I started the first of these programs over 20 years ago. So when they were 14 to 18 then, and I was hopefully able to inspire them, they're now in their mid-30s. And they are leaders in their community. There are doctors and lawyers and politicians. I'm very proud to say on Bonaire, the head of the government monuments and archaeology department is a former student of mine. On Saint Martin, the head of the monuments and archaeology department Is a former student of mine. So what I have been trying to do with my career is to inspire and get local Antillian youth who now are leaders in the community to have that foundation of awareness of the value of heritage. Why are we saving it and what it can be used for? And the benefit of the people.
0: Can you give me an example of just one cultural resource on the island so people can visualize what you're doing?
3: Well, you know, one of the projects that we've done in all three of the projects, all three of the foundations, which I find so wonderful because it's a link between nature and culture, is the documentation and preservation of very large trees on the island. We call them heritage trees. And on two of the islands, we've been actually able to convince the government to make laws to protect them. These are trees that have a base that's over a meter diameter. These are very big trees. So the students, we go out, we take a GPS reader, we get a GPS mark, we do uh, descriptions and photographs. But then all those GPS coordinates, those little dots on a map, We turn those over to the government. And the government then, in its urban planning or its planning offices, when someone comes with a development plan, they say, ah, you've got heritage trees. And because we've been able to get the legislation, they have to adapt to preserving the heritage trees. Okay, so how has climate change changed how you do your job? Climate change, I think the bigger picture of how climate change is affecting our job right now is that there is actual physical Loss. We can see ruins that are eroding into the sea and disappearing. can see aspects of what's going to happen with sea level rise as it comes. These are the things that we are aware of as scientists, but we need to do a really good job of making sure the community, and particularly the decision makers in the community, are aware of these things are happening. We're losing heritage, and that we need to take action for it.
0: Okay, related to that, you are in the Hurricane Belt. How does that impact
3: the work you do? We are dead in the Hurricane Belt. And as a matter of fact, in 2017, the island of St. Martin was devastated by Hurricanes Irma and Maria. We have been building back. Actually, the archaeological center on St. Martin was completely destroyed. We had to spend weeks with the students actually excavating the archaeological center to get the collections out. We saved about 85% of the collections. Anything textile, paper, a lot of my documents and early files were lost. However, we did save 85% of the national collections with the students coming out. And I and I want to point out something very important. It's about instilling passion as well, too. These students, like me, had gone through the hurricane also. We also had our homes destroyed. We also were in, in suffering at that moment. and yet they came out and helped to save the collections from the center. That's what I'm trying to do, is inspire that sense of pride and ownership of heritage, because that's really where we have to go. Heritage of these islands is for the people of these islands. Scientists are welcome to research it, but it's their heritage, and we need to have them have that sense of ownership and pride with heritage. You gave a presentation at this conference, and one
0: of the things that stood out for me is you mentioned how critical nature is to cultural resources. What did you mean by that?
3: Well, nature and culture and cultural resources, we have to find the balance, because we are living in in very limited resource environments. Islands have great limitations, and we have to realize that, for example, the large trees that I mentioned earlier, if we don't put some sort of protection for these trees and they keep getting eliminated, we're not going to get those size trees ever again. So it's about realizing that we are at a precipice in history right now where there are certain things that if we don't deal directly with protecting them, we will lose them, not just lose them, we'll lose them forever. So how has this conference been useful to you? Networking. What I really appreciate about this group so far, and I had never worked with the Craig Group, and I really like it. I think Lisa Craig is a very dynamic woman, and I really appreciate the fact that so many other organizations, including the National Trust TT, were part of this. It's the networking for me. So I can meet other professionals from other islands, see what they're doing, find out ways that we can link and do cooperative projects, but also see where everybody is. You know, some are more advanced than others with different programs. Some have different funding. It's also a way about finding out for funding resources and stuff like that. This kind of gathering for me, it's great that I I can communicate and I hope what I say helps some people. But for me, it's really about the networking of other professionals in the region. People want to learn more about what you're up to. Where should they go? Dr. Jay Haviser, you can reach me through our through our Facebook, which would be the Saint Martin Archaeological Center, C-Mark it's called. By the way, another way easy to reach me. I happen to be president of what's called the International Association for Caribbean Archaeology. This is the biggest gathering of archaeologists in the region, and you could reach us through our website and Facebook pages. Way, IACA, I A C A, International Association for Caribbean Archaeology. Thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you, Doug. And I really am glad that America Adapts is here because it's your voice, your ability to take these messages out to the greater world. That's what we need. What we need is all this to be out there so it doesn't catch people off guard. You know, it's it's crazy that the kind of reports we're doing here, we can see that this stuff is happening fast. Climate change isn't some long-term thing now. It is really happening fast. It's affecting our lives immediately. So your podcast, it's important to get the word out so we don't get lackadaisical and sort of sit back and say, oh, we don't have to worry. It'll be the next generation or another. No, we do have to worry. It's happening now. Hey, doctors, I'm
0: back and I'm with...
9: Dr. Angela Shadell.
0: Okay, so where do you work?
9: I work at Taylor Engineering in Jacksonville, Florida.
0: Tell me about some of your roles and responsibilities there.
9: I am a vice president, so I have the opportunity to supervise five different engineers and scientists, and I'm also the resilience lead, which means that I got to invent a role for myself when I started at Taylor to add resilience to all of the projects our company had already been working on over the 35-year history, but taking what I learned from sea level rise and adaptation and providing that opportunity to all of our other vice presidents and leads.
0: Okay, so you came here and gave a presentation. Can you just briefly summarize what you were talking about there?
9: Yeah, my presentation was on the Bahamas recovery from Hurricane Dorian, which happened in September 2019. I own a house on that island. I did not own a house before Hurricane Dorian, and my husband and my family spent a lot of time helping with recovery. And I think the bottom line up front, the story to understand from it is that the recovery there was led mostly by local citizens, second homeowners, NGOs, and not so much by the Bahamian government.
0: Give me some of the challenges that came with that disaster
9: response. I mean, the island is tiny. It's three miles long by half a mile wide. It has 200 residents, and it's a very remote, tiny island, if you can get that picture, of very family-oriented. They don't have the infrastructure. The entire power grid collapsed. All of the power lines fell down. There was More than half the houses were damaged severely and needed new roofs or new walls. The people had nowhere to live. They had no power. Their water is via cisterns and rainfall. When you don't have a roof, you don't have gutters, therefore you don't collect water. And the cisterns are below ground or under the houses, which need pumps to get the water out. So people then were challenged with just getting water out with buckets, which was pretty contaminated. So that food was brought in, water was brought in, diesel had to be brought in for generators just for power. So just basic subsistence was difficult. So a lot of people fled the island, especially the elderly women, the children, to go get kids in school and get medical help. But just rebuilding, getting materials on the island, excavators, heavy equipment. All requires a barge. There's no airstrip, so just logistically, it's hard to live there, anyways. The people are very resourceful, but it was the the biggest hurricane event they'd ever had in that island.
0: In that sort of event, you're thinking more immediate human needs, but did you have time to contemplate the impact on cultural resources? Was that something discussed any time in this response?
9: Yeah, definitely. One interesting thing about Manowar is it's known around the Abaco region of the Bahamas as a boat building mecca and is very much known for the origination and the building of the Abaco dinghy, which was used by the citizens to, to sponge and to conch and to fish. So that's their livelihood is, you know, basically sustenance. Tourism being the secondary part of the economy. And I think some of that tourism comes from the heritage infrastructure that's there, which is the Manowar Museum, which has a great coffee shop. I call it my local Starbucks on the island, but it's Bahamian style as well. As the Abaco dinghies that are on the island, um, there's an older vessel, a big schooner, the William H. Albury, that was one of the last large wooden ships built there. It was wrecked and sunk, and it's back there now getting, getting repaired, but it is a tourist attraction. It, it attracts people to come and see the Albury Sail shop, the Manowar Museum, the really old historic little cottages that are 150 years old. that people want to see that heritage, so in preserving that, that was a priority to get them up and running quickly so that people from other islands would want to come back.
0: You've been at previous Keeping History Above Water conferences. Give us your opinion. How do you feel like the conference has evolved? Here you are, at this most recent one.
9: I mean, the first one I went to was in Annapolis, and I had lived in Annapolis for about a decade at that time. And I was so excited because Annapolis had so much flooding. And we were able to bring our lessons learned to people from all over the United States. And then the next one, I was in St. Augustine, which was also having flooding. It was almost a, a repeat, almost a deja vu. But here in Trinidad, Tobago, what I'm seeing is we're getting much more collaboration from other nations. And I love hearing from the women from Montserrat, the gentlemen from Saint Martin, the women from the Cayman Islands, and being able just to collaborate and learn from other people in island nations how they are coping with sea level rise, climate change, how they're adapting. Everyone does it a little bit differently. Their culture is is all different.
0: Okay, so this is branded and it's going to be moving around, but any recommendations where they might do this next and why and what would be some themes for that?
9: I think we can learn a lot from Europe. We always point to the Netherlands and our colleagues there, the Dutch, of what they have done successfully in keeping history above water. And as much as the Dutch have branded that, and brought it to the United States to to sell their expertise. I think a a European venture of keeping history above water would be very informative to people all over the world to understand just how they live with water, because most of the country in the Netherlands is below sea level. And while they have giant infrastructure, they also have very small solutions at the building scale that we could learn from.
0: You haven't gone yet. You're going today. But give us a preview of the swamp you're about to visit.
9: I'm going to the Caroni Bird Sanctuary, and from what I understand, it is a mangrove swamp. So it's got scarlet ibis and flamingos, and we're going on a boat tour at sunset, and it's supposed to be just one of the most wonderful natural heritage, you know, a thing that attracts visitors to Trinidad. So I'm very excited to see it.
5: Thanks for coming on the podcast.
9: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Hey, adapters, I'm back. I'm here with Dr. David Guggenheim. Hi, David.
9: Hi, how are you?
0: I'm doing great, so can you tell us where you work?
10: I have two roles. I run the NGO Ocean Doctor in Washington, D.C., focused on protecting the oceans, and I'm also an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University teaching ocean conservation.
0: Okay, I saw your presentation. It was a fantastic presentation. You covered a lot of ground. Cuba was a big part of it, but can you give us some additional highlights for those who didn't get to see it?
10: I was talking about the fact that the natural environment and the built environment, our historic preservation, are really closely linked. The oceans are part of our heritage, but also the natural environment has the ability to protect the built environment. And Mother Nature really is quite powerful. So things like protecting coral reefs, protecting mangroves, if you look at the power of that and the cost of restoration being much less than building gray infrastructure. It's a no brainer pretty much. We need to do more to protect our coral reefs and do more to protect our mangroves and all of the other vegetation.
0: Okay, so it's very hard, I'm sure, because you had a lot of material in the presentation, but Cuba was a big part of what you were talking about in the reefs in Cuba that are relatively healthy compared to a lot of Caribbean reefs. Why is that? What's going on in Cuba that allowed that to happen?
10: I think it's an encouraging message. I think we look at coral reefs and we think of climate change, and that's certainly part of it. All of this bleaching, what we saw in the Great Barrier Reef was devastating. And we've lost half of the coral reefs in the Caribbean. That's becoming a worldwide figure. So a lot of us feel helpless. It's global warming. The reefs are dying. There's nothing we can do about it unless the entire world gets together and controls climate, which is not looking optimistic, at least in the, in the short term. But the message is, in Cuba, we're finding that doing things locally to protect coral reefs may have an equal, if not greater, impact on the health of coral reefs. So it comes down to things like nutrient pollution from fertilizers, from fertilizing our own backyards or big agriculture. So I contrasted what we've done in the United States and all of that awful stuff running off into our waterways, stimulating the growth of algae. And that algae can smother coral reefs in the absence of fish and other invertebrates that can graze that algae off. And the sad thing is we have overfished those very fish that can save coral reefs. People don't usually associate overfishing with the health of coral reefs, but that's a factor. So if you look at Cuba, when the Soviet Union pulled out in 1991 after it collapsed, Cuba was really suffering. They had very little food and they had no fertilizer. And so essentially they've been practicing organic farming for many, many years. And that has clearly benefited the coral reefs. They're not smothered in algae and they're not overfishing. They're overfishing in some areas, but they're fishing in small boats with hook and line. So these are local things that we do have control over. There are many others. I talk about corals as the princess and the pea. They pretty much are sensitive and hate just about every little thing that we do. So we have to be really careful.
0: I'm sure this would be an interesting debate, people in the cultural resource space and people in the natural resource space. Do you think it's harder to get people to value one over the other? I mean, not that you want to, but do you think people value cultural resources more than do natural resources or vice versa?
10: I think the challenge is that the built environment, the cultural resources are things that we see. They're very tangible. And when you look out at the oceans, which is part of our heritage, they look pretty healthy from the surface. You don't see what's underneath. Very few people go underwater. And those that do may be looking at a dead reef, but to them, they've never seen what a reef is supposed to look like. So there's a real lack of recognition that our oceans are in trouble. So I don't think it's purposeful. I don't think that we value one versus the other. I just think we need more education and awareness about what's happening in the oceans. And then I think this synergy that develops, that the restoration of the natural environment can actually come to the rescue of our cultural environment, is also, I think, a a perception and a realization of how important it is to consider both as incredibly valuable.
0: Okay, let's talk that, about that a little bit. You mentioned that in your presentation, and, you, and you're looking at the global carbon markets, and you get involved with solutions to some of these problems that you talk about. How can global carbon markets play a role?
10: We're partnering with a group called Blue Green Future, and the concept here is to turn carbon from a cost, which is the way we all perceive carbon, into an investment. And restoration of mangroves here in Trinidad or, or around the world It's not cheap. Somebody's got to go in and do it. There's a lot of labor and materials, but the price of carbon is increasing dramatically. And that changes the equation. And so the head of Blue Green Future spent 25 years at the International Monetary Fund. And he's really worked out a new economic model so that you can bring in outside private investment into restoration of natural resources, including mangroves, seagrasses, and all of these things we've been talking about. And even as an investor, even get a return on your investment. So it changes the whole concept of restoration. If you're a local government or state or national government, with a need to restore natural resources, you can bring in outside funds to restore those natural resources, but the investors will not own those resources. They're buying the services of those resources to sequester carbon. It's a very interesting model. It's one that doesn't require new taxes. In fact, it saves the government money. It doesn't require new laws and regulations. Again, it turns carbon from a cost into an investment. And we're working with a pilot project in the state of Florida. We think it would be ideal for the Everglades restoration to really reduce the cost of that restoration, save the state money. Really, everybody wins.
0: You've written a book. Let's give my listeners a few details about that.
10: The book is called The Remarkable Reefs of Cuba, Hopeful Stories from the Ocean Doctor. And so the Ocean Doctor is both the name of my NGO and the name that my daughter gave me years ago. So it's sort of my nickname.
0: Uh, I'll have a link in my show notes for this episode if people want to explore that. But thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much. Hey, Daptons, we're back. And I'm with... Vanessa. Bass. All right Benair tell me where are you based and what do you do there
11: So I'm based in Montserrat which is in the West Indies I'm a management consultant here and I work primarily for the government of Montserrat
0: Well it's great that other islands are attending this conference here in Trinidad and Tobago can you briefly tell us a bit about your island cuz each island is is different we all think Caribbean islands we think of paradise but tell us a bit about the uniqueness of
11: your island So our island is very unique. In July of 1995, our volcano became active and destroyed, over the course of 15 years, destroyed three quarters of the island. So only a quarter of the island is currently inhabitable. Currently, the population is roughly about 3,000 people, so we have a very small population. Because of the impact of the volcano, probably 80% of the island migrated to the UK because the volcano erupted continuously for 15 years. The last eruption was in 2010. So now we're in the process of rebuilding all of the infrastructure of the island because Plymouth, which is the capital city of the island, was right in the path of the volcano. So not only did we lose our port, but we also lost our airport as well. So now we're in the process of rebuilding our port, our hospital, and we received an airport, I think it was in 2008. We're able to access the island by airplane. We're currently able to access the island by boat, but we have a very small port, so they're currently building a new one.
0: Wow, <laughs> what unique challenges! I mean, it, I didn't realize it was such a slow-rolling volcanic destruction. We've talked a bit more before this interview about some of that. I didn't realize that in the population, I didn't get it. it was that tiny. So it must be hard to rebound from such a, a you know dramatic event.
11: Absolutely. Especially with the small population, it's difficult to rebuild. One of the issues that we face here in Montserrat is that even though our population is only 3,000 people, I'll say 70% of those are now migrants, the so people who have migrated to the island from other islands within the Caribbean region, mostly for employment opportunities. But also Montserrat is a gateway to the UK because if you don't know anything about Montserrat, we're also a UK overseas territory, which means that we receive about... 60% of our financial aid from the UK, and the other 40% is made up with taxes. So if you stay on the island for about six years, you can technically migrate to the UK and become a British citizen. So we have this constant influx of people, so we also have migration that's always happening.
0: All right, I want to come back to that because I think that's very interesting and very relevant to some of the things that we can predict will happen with climate change. But first, we're here at this Keeping History Above Water conference in Trinidad and Tobago. What brought you here?
11: So I came because one of the roles that I have as a consultant here on the island is to work with the Montserrat National Trust. And that is to, the Montserrat National Trust's responsibility is really to maintain all of our heritage sites, but also to maintain the history and and culture of the island and to preserve it going forward, because we lost a lot of it during the volcanic crisis. One of the reasons why I wanted to attend the conference also was because I think that most of the the impact of the volcano is quite similar to the impact of climate change. So it was interesting to be a part of the discussion.
0: All right. Let's just jump into that then, though, because you, you, I don't know if there's any presentations that really stood out for you or that w- was helpful for you. But if a lot of what you think of islands and climate change and sea level rise, this whole notion that you're going to have to have the population migrate. And so the volcano actually was it was a dramatic test run. But in some ways, you, I'm assuming you're, you're, there's going to be lessons learned for how you're going to have to react to climate
7: change.
11: Exactly. So one of the main things that jumped out to me was when we had the discussion about forced migration and also the issue with most of the heritage sites being close to the coastline. We lost a lot of our heritage sites during the volcano for that reason, because obviously when a volcano erupts, it's heading towards the sea to cool down and the island has actually grown because of this process. So it was interesting to see the different perspectives also with the impacts of climate change on things like the coral reef because the volcano has also affected our coral reef. So what we found is that sometimes they're able to evolve and get past the issues caused by the, um, the ash fall. So those are some of the issues that really jump <laughs> jumped out. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's in my head right now. I'm circulating just what an odd situation. Of course, the volcano and you're just saying the islands actually growing and we usually associate with sea level rise. These islands are going to shrink and you kind of had the opposite effect and it's created its own issues there.
11: Yeah, so the thing is we're having a combination of the two. So on the northern side that's currently inhabitable, we're having issues with coastal erosion as well, which is something that we're seeing throughout the region. So right where the museum is located, for example, and where they're planning to build a new city, we're experiencing coastal erosion there. So on the south side and the east side of the island, the island is actually growing because of the pyroclastic flows. But on the northern side of the island and parts of the island that have existed for obviously billions of years, we're experiencing that coastal erosion as well.
0: That is absolutely crazy to think about. There is a great documentary to be had here. I don't know if there's any... Are there? Did anyone do anything like that? Are there any resources like that where people can kind of s- visualize this?
11: So there's been numerous documentaries on the island, mainly focusing on the volcanic activity and the impact of the volcano on the, the island itself. Like I said, the island has grown dramatically, but it's grown in different ways as well. So we have the pyroclastic flow, which is all of the molten rock and things like that that come out of the volcano but the other way that the island has grown has been as a result of mud flows and mahas so what happens when you have a volcano and you have all that seismic activity there's earthquakes constantly happening by the volcano and because we're also in the caribbean we experience natural disasters and hurricanes on an annual basis during the hurricane season so what happens when we get lots of rainfall is that all of the mud and the rocks that are around the volcano become unstable and then they come down just quite similar to a pyroclastic flow and that has also increased the size of the island so on say the south east side the island's been increased by the pyroclastic flows but on the i'll say the northeastern side of the island it has grown but it has grown because of mud flows and lahas so there's a lot happening on the island all at once so i think it's a very interesting case study when we're thinking about climate change and obviously when you think about things like air pollution as well with the ash the air was constantly polluted with the ash so we had to deal with that as well so you have all the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere for example
0: wow well okay here at the conference you're learning from your your peers and other people from other islands what are you taking back home how is that going to influence what you do there
11: So what I'm taking back home really is a lot of, um, I was really fascinated by the presentation. It was basically where they were building these artificial barriers to stop the coastal erosion. I think that's something that we should definitely look into because for example, on the north of the island, it would be very useful to have that because again, when all the rivers start flowing into the ocean and then also the ocean coming in further inland, it's actually affecting things like, you know, when we have turtles who are nesting, But also it's affecting one of our main a-roads that actually helps us to distribute food around the island and stuff like that. So it was really interesting to see also the case studies of Port of Spain as well. The fact that Port of Spain is almost more or less underwater. And, you know, all of the laser photography that they were using to see how the future impact that climate change will have on the buildings. So I think those were kind of the main takeaways. Not only focusing on the problems, but looking at some of the solutions that we can use here on the island.
0: Okay, last question. If someone was visiting your island, what spot would you recommend that they go?
11: So if someone was visiting the island, I will definitely recommend that they go and see the Buried City because I think its we call it our modern-day Pompeii, and it's really interesting to see the impact of nature and to see also not just the devastation that it caused, but also to see how the island was created in the first place. So i definitely recommend that they go to see the Buried City, which we're hoping one day will become a World Heritage Site.
0: Very cool. Well, Vernier, thanks for coming on the podcast. You're
11: welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's a wonderful opportunity to be on the podcast, but also to be in the presence of so many professionals here at the conference.
0: Hey, Adapters. I'm back and I'm with Jeff Goodell. Hey, Jeff. How are you doing? Good to see you. Well, you gave a presentation today. Can you give us some highlights? Well, I just
12: tried to talk about sea level rise, about what I learned from the years of reporting my book, The Water Will Come. My focus was on basically how fast is the RC is going to rise? How do we deal with the kind of uncertainty of it? And what kind of things we will do to try to adapt to those rising seas? And, you know, my basic argument was that we're going to do a lot of brilliant stuff and create a lot of really new, interesting coastal ways of living. And we're going to do a lot of really dumb stuff that's going to waste a lot of money and cause a lot of suffering and hardship. And, you know, ended up with this question of the most difficult questions, I think, with sea level rise and coastal adaptation is about you know,
0: who and what is going to be saved. Is this your first time in Trinidad and Tobago? It is, yeah. Any sort of thoughts or insights related to what you do?
12: Well, Trinidad is, it it kind of almost embodies in a very profound way the difficulties of dealing with the climate crisis i mean we here we have a country that is i think 40 percent of their gdp comes from oil and gas they have one of the highest per capita co2 emissions rates in the world up there with kuwait and places like that and yet it's an island state highly vulnerable to sea level rise most of the settlement is in you know low-lying areas that have been built on landfill It is a very vulnerable place that is very dependent on oil and gas, and they need to manage the transition both away from fossil fuels and adapting to the changes brought from burning those fossil fuels, which is a very
0: complicated passage. It's been 10 years since your article, Goodbye, Miami. You said this in your presentation, but can you give some more observations what's changed since that article's come out?
12: Well, you know, it's interesting. In the 10 years since I first wrote about sea level rise, you know, I first went to Miami in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy in New York thinking about, you know, water will do to a city. And at the time, when I went to Miami, I went there the first time on a day of sunny day flooding was standing in two feet of water in Sunset Harbor, which is one of the sort of wealthiest regions of Miami. And it became very clear to me that this city and many other coastal cities were in big trouble. And that kind of launched my book. And at the time, you know, there was a lot of naivete about how people were going to deal with this. I had urban planners in Miami telling me, oh, we're just going to raise the whole city two feet and it'll be fine. And I'm like, well, what do you mean raise the whole city two feet? And he's like, oh, yeah, it's like I've talked to engineers. We can raise buildings that's not a problem and is that was a very profoundly kind of simplistic and naive view because of course raising buildings is possible but raising roads how it changes drainage patterns how you deal with airports in in south florida you have things like nuclear plants sitting right on the coast so it was, there was a lot of naivete in the 10 years things have gotten much more sophisticated places like miami and other places have gotten much more sophisticated in their thinking about w- how to adapt there's been a lot of money a lot of plans written a lot of engineering projects. We have the Ike Dyke in Houston, things like that. We have lots of interesting projects happening in Norfolk but it's not happening anywhere near fast enough and the, we have not even begun to grapple with the m- most complex challenges like getting people out of harm's way, retreating from areas, the questions of justice and equity and how we build protections from sea level rise in most cities has not even begun to be grappled with. So I would say we're at the beginning of the beginning
0: of the beginning of this. You use the term big dumb wall. What did you mean?
12: Well, I mean, you know, When we think about sea level rise and you think about what to deal with, how to deal with it, the the first instinct is to build a wall. I mean, that's how humans have dealt with all kinds of things they want to keep out, whether it's, you know, marauding invaders in a fortress in the mountains or rising seas on the coast. And, you know, you have agencies like the Army Corps of Engineers who are you know, basically responsible for a lot of large mega projects in the United States. And their instinct is to pour a lot of concrete and build a lot of walls. And it's also an easy political sell because people look at a wall, and they think, oh, okay, I'm safe. There's a wall. And it's the default mechanism for engineering on coasts. And it is a very flawed idea for many reasons. Among them is that how high a wall do you build? Sea level rise is very uncertain. When you build a wall, it just pushes the water somewhere else. It's a kind of false illusion of safety. And most importantly, there's this question of who gets the wall and who doesn't. As I said in my talk, if you're in Manhattan and the wall goes up to 51st Street and you live on 52nd Street, well, why does the wall stop there? And if you live in Red Hook, you wonder why is Lower Manhattan getting a wall and we're not. And it just... Underlines and accentuates the questions of equity and justice around us.
0: During your presentation, you were showing some maps of sea level rise and impact on Trinidad and Tobago and some stuff that you were able to find. And it, it, I, it got me thinking, neither of us have spent much time on the island, but I have talked to some of the locals and I am just absolutely surprised how, I guess, integrated a very, this is a very diverse nation, people from all sorts, and they're doing a relatively good job living together. It's not perfect. And it got me thinking about social resilience. How do you think Trinidad, when you think about migration from other islands, are they in a better position when you think about what's coming?
12: I don't really know about that. I I can't say that I have expertise in any of that. You know, Trinidad is a country with a long history of migration and immigration here. That's one of the most interesting things about it to me is the incredibly diverse culture here. But at the same time, it's a small island state. It doesn't have huge resources. Uh, The development is in a lot of low-lying areas. I went for a drive yesterday out to Manzanilla Beach where I saw the whole road had been wiped out from rising seas and there was a long landscape of abandoned homes and homes falling into the sea. I mean, I went to see the leatherback turtles that lay their eggs on the beaches here. It's one of the most important leatherback turtle nesting grounds in the world. And the people who were taking me out, uh, the experts, were talking about how sea level rise is endangering the nesting grounds because the beaches are being washed away. You know, there's all these implications for this in a place like Trinidad that are both subtle and profound and beyond just the fact that You know, the big banking systems and banking buildings and other infrastructure in downtown are built on landfill and at risk. You have a new book coming out. Can you give us a preview? I do have a new book. So the new book is called The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. And it basically is trying to do for extreme heat what the water will come did with sea level rise, which is to think about it on a global scale in all of its implications. We think about, you know, hot days and heat and, you know, we all kind of know that it's uncomfortable and it's kind of a bummer if it gets too hot and all that. But I don't think anybody's really thought very deeply about what extreme heat really means and the notion that basically all life, including us on this planet, evolved in what scientists call a Goldilocks zone, which is a relatively narrow band of temperature range, and we do fine as long as we're in that temperature range. But once we move out of that range, it's big trouble. And not just big trouble for, for us, but for plants, for trees, for crops, for all living things. And the book tries to really look at that. And in a way, it's interesting contrast to my book about sea level rise, because sea level rise is really about, You know, I mean, some people would say it's about real estate, it's about infrastructure, it's about how we live on the coast, but no one's going to die of sea level rise. You don't stand on the beach and have the water rise so fast that, you know, you drown. Obviously, it can impact storm surge and things like that, but the heat will kill you. And it will kill you fast. And it's really a, a story about the extreme risks we run in these extreme heat waves that are becoming more and more part of our lives. The heat wave in the British Columbia and the Pacific Northwest in 2021 is a great example. Nobody thought about that as a place where there were going to be heat waves. The idea there was 122 degrees in British Columbia and you had a town that more or less spontaneously combusted. You know, that was not on anybody's bingo cards for the, our climate future. And so I look at things like that, heat waves in the ocean, heat waves impacts on crops, on food security. And just, you know, I go into some detail about how heat kills you. What does heat do to a human body? And it's, to me,
0: pretty scary prospect all right hopefully I'm gonna get you on the podcast when the book comes out thanks Jeff for coming on the podcast thanks for having me
13: Hey, actors I'm back and I'm with his worship mayor Joel Martinez yes I'm Joel Martinez the mayor of the capital city of Trinidad and Tobago it's the city of Port of Spain and it's a beautiful day in the city of Port of Spain and it's a beautiful country as a matter of fact Okay, so we're here at this Keeping History Above Water conference. Why are you here? Well, I have been invited to bring greetings because once you have an event in the city of Port of Spain, and it's one of this type of magnitude, what they do is they tend to invite the mayor to bring greetings. And because I have traveled the world and have been to many of these type of events where you have climate change, because that seems to be the in-thing now where everyone wants to be able to deal with it because the development banks, countries are starting to see the effects of it and how it has impacted on on human life and living and so on. And I think they want to show that they may bring some form of relevance to these meetings. Okay, so as a mayor, you have to worry about things like roads
0: and law enforcement. How does climate change come up in what you're doing here at Port of Spain?
13: Well, we live on an island, and first of all, and it's surrounded by water, and climate change seems to be the impact on, especially in the Caribbean islands, hurricanes, and we had one of our strongest earthquakes in many, many, many years, just a few years ago. But we're sort of in the hurricane belt, but a little bit off of it because we are The last island in the Caribbean just off of South America. So what happens is we do get the impact of heavy rains and a lot of winds and so on. And we have had one or two hurricanes that have impacted on us. But we are starting to see now that there's climate change. The hurricanes are coming closer and closer and closer to the mainland of South America. And then because we are on earthquake footing, you find that we're starting to get some more and more tremors. As far as I see it, we should be very impactful, you know, and we have to be concerned about climate change. What is happening, too, is that the days are getting hotter, the nights are getting colder. So you're seeing a change of temperature, which could maybe impact not just the humans, but the ecosystems. And it may impact on the way in which we do things in, into the future. Youth engagement is an important thing for you. How can
0: youth be uh, play a role in climate change?
13: One of the things that I found that you really need to, to be able to, to drive and make it as impactful as, as ever is that you have to include the young people. The youth has a sort of a dynamic thinking because they're still young and they are aggressive in their thinking. They, they're different from the, the older generations who would have grown up without any of these issues and uh, their their whole thinking on change sometimes is a little more lethargic than the young people. They are a lot more aggressive, as I, as I would put it. And uh, to me, if you really want to make a change, you have to help them to see that the future is impacted, and it could really impact on how their type of living into the future will will be affected. I can see that we really need to engage the youth in a more meaningful way and get them to be a part of the process. I've never
0: been able to ask a mayor this, but I'm going to put you on the spot. What makes Port of Spain so
13: special? Port of Spain is a city that is a mixture of historic and modern architecture. We have is the epic center of Carnival. It's a space that when you hear of having a good time, and um, enjoyment and happiness, you have that thinking of carnival, which happens in Port of Spain, so Port of Spain is very uniquely charmed in that way, in that particular way. I am quite happy to be the mayor of the capital city at this time, I will not be the mayor forever, but I'm trying to do as much as I can do, not just locally, but regionally and internationally. Uh, One of the things I wanted to mention to you, though, was the fact that we've just recently gotten a designation from the UNESCO network, which is, uh, we are now a city of music. As you would know, we're the the city that produced the steel pan, which is the only percussion instrument that was invented recently within the 20th century. We are known for carnival, we are known for our calypso, our soca, Rap soaker, chutney soaker and all the different types of genres of music that are now taking its place in the earth and and around the world. So it's a, it's a real unique type of how we celebrate because I call it happy music because our music is not one that makes you sad or feeling a a sense of melancholy, but it's a music that helps you to make you feel energized and energetic. Nice sunshine kind of island kind of music. Thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It is a pleasure talking to you, Doug.
0: Hey adapters, we're back and I'm with
14: Kara Rup Singh.
0: Hey, Kerr. It's great to talk to you. We are having this conversation after the conference because I wanted to do a wrap up with you and Lisa Craig. And so we're going to talk about some of the highlights from the conference, but I also want to get your thoughts on there were actual outcomes. But first off, just so people know who you are, what's your role there at the National Trust?
14: So I'm the Senior Heritage Preservation and Research Officer at the National Trust of Trinidad and Tobago. That's just a very long title, meaning I handle a lot of the legal listing and protection of heritage sites, just safeguarding heritage sites and protecting them under the National Trust Act. And a lot of the research work that my department does, as well as managing this resilient heritage project right now, that's a two-year grant project funded by the U.S. Ambassadors Fund for Cultural Preservation.
0: And just to acknowledge, if you folks hear some birds in the background, Kara is actually, she's in dad right now. And so those are birds. And just, it's, I'm challenging my listeners, if you know what birds they are, contact me and let me know and we'll see if we can identify those species. All right, let's move on. Kara. let's talk about your role in organizing the conference. So we're now after the conference, but tell us a little about that.
14: Yeah. So this was a big... Output of the grant, one of this major engagement strategies so that we can get an international audience chatting with our local stakeholders and our regional stakeholders, especially and bringing them together to chat about this topic of climate change and heritage. We reached out to a lot of our regional partners first, of course, our local partners, a lot of national trust within the Caribbean region. We made sure it was a hybrid event. We wanted to get that online engagement for those who weren't able to fly into Trinidad and Tobago and the recordings we made. sure to put them online for continuous engagement so that we can have people comment and send us their insights and we want to have continuous feedback and engagement throughout this project and then we have of course the youth are very special to us in this project so we made sure to invite them to the conference and to participate as well.
0: Yes. And you also you're doing this podcast, too. And so there's many different platforms that you guys are getting the word out, which I think is fantastic. All right. I want to talk a little bit just to ground some more. You know, we've heard from different folks talking about these issues. But basically, what are some of the challenges faced by the Heritage Properties studying this grant? And how's your project addressing those challenges?
14: There's different challenges, I would say. So the sites that are downtown Port of Spain, they're in an urban landscape, an urban environment. They often get you know, lumped in with regular infrastructure in terms of how they're dealt with. But we know that historic properties built out of lime mortar or stone require specialist care and attention. This project is helping raise awareness of some of the impacts that these sites downtown Port of Spain are going to face in terms of a changing climate. And then we have Nelson Island, which is uh, an island just off the coast of Chagaramas. And that island is a unique historic site out in the ocean, open to a lot of different elements to what's happening downtown Port of Spain. And then we're trying to use that 3D laser scanning to be able to model and plan and understand what is going to happen to these sites in 50 years, 100 years, as it's impacted by climate change.
0: Okay, so you alluded to it, there's the the scanning there. Can you tell, probably not going to be able to share all of them, but what were some of these technological methods that helped you assess the condition and vulnerabilities of these sites?
14: Yeah, so one of the things we used was 3D terrestrial laser scanning. That's the University of Florida team from the Historic Preservation Program. They used terrestrial laser scanners to get a streetscape view of the downtown Port of Spain sites and they actually scanned the entire Nelson Island site, including all of the buildings and relics. They also used drone footage to capture some of the areas that the laser scanner couldn't see or pick up. And then they also used photogrammetry to capture some of those smaller, detailed architectural features. And all of that combined would be put into climate change modeling so that we could understand how to better plan and mitigate some of the effects that will happen on these sites
0: you just led me here is you now have this information. So what kind of strategies were you planning to do to increase the resilience of these heritage properties?
14: That's where the phase we're at right now, writing up and creating these adaptation plans. Because what if the workshop at the end of the conference actually gave us a lot of that public engagement, that opinion, getting people's ideas of what do they think is not working, what needs to be improved, What are some of the requirements, that things that we should be looking at in terms of climate change and heritage? So we're going to put all of that together as a team. And that's when the final report will come out at the end of December.
0: So you just prompted me there. I was going to ask you a bit about the workshop. So there was the conference, but then you had a one day workshop. Can you give us a little bit more background? Not everyone who's at the conference attended the workshop. Tell us a little bit about that process.
14: So the workshop was half-day workshop at the end of the conference, which was for locals only. So the idea was to tap into that local resource and say, okay, now that you've had these three days of discussions, of presentations, of sharing some of the results, our scanning and vulnerability assessments from the project, after you've digested all of that, let's have a discussion and see what ideas we can share amongst each other to see what we could come up with to help. Everyone was broken up into breakout sessions and they were able to come up with strategies and and areas that they think that we need to focus on for our reports.
0: Can you give us a little bit of a preview? Obviously you can't give us all the workshop outcomes, but just some of the things that were generated. It must have been because there was 3 days of the wo- actual conference and that probably really helped inform a lot of those conversations, right?
14: It did inform a lot of the conversations. I think one of the main focuses for the I would say change would be governance and, and policy changes. So a lot of people wanted a data sharing pathway across public and private sectors. So for example, a geographic information system or a spatial data infrastructure that was accessible to both government institutions as well as a private citizen. So that they can be able to understand the landscape or make decisions by having that spatial data available to them you know, they need to create a disaster plan and things like that. It's not as easily accessible right now. And then they believe that education and, you know, raising awareness about resilience and sustainable building practices. So passing building codes and having legislation and codes for building guidelines and construction guidelines, all of those things would help mitigate disasters as well. So that's just some of the examples.
0: Okay, so do you see an opportunity for your National Trust to share what you have learned through this whole process with some of the other island nations in the Caribbean?
14: Oh, absolutely. I think we have similar problems within the region, you know, a lack of maintenance of some of these historic sites. A lot of our sites are coastal in nature. Quite a bit of the islands have to deal with hurricanes and other natural disasters constantly every season. So, this is a good opportunity to share this methodology, and at least, share what's working with this methodology with other islands so that they can also come up with their strategies and adaptation plans based on their local. That's the best part about, I would say, that laser scanning is it gets into that localized on the ground data with that high level of accuracy so that you can plan better for these disasters.
0: So you were able to get some of the local leaders there in Trinidad and Tobago to actually attend the conference. How do you think this conference benefited what they want to do? did you hear some feedback? Did you feel like there was this learning process from the actual leaders there in the field?
14: Yeah, so I think our ministry the Ministry of planning and development has been super supportive throughout this project and this process. I think we've done a really this conference especially has done a really good job of raising awareness of letting them know that heritage and cultural heritage has an important role to play in this fight against climate change. Currently, our ministry, I know, is going through the process of editing and and doing consultations on the national climate change policy. So we're hoping that with this perfect timing of this project, we can say, hey, cultural heritage needs to be on there. It needs to be noted in a specific way. And these reports will be able to give you that data to do so.
0: My listeners have already heard from Margaret McDowell. She's the chair there at the National Trust. And we we had talked at the conference and you and I are talking now after the conference. And she was very excited. I asked her, what's next? How does this inform what you're going to do with your team there? And so are you hearing a bit about that? Was there this, okay, now we've got this and there's just new energy to do the kind of work that you're doing on this project?
14: There's a lot of new energy now. There's a lot of traction. I know we've, we're getting a lot of you know, requests for consultations on different things. So I think this has started a really nice momentum. And I hope to keep it going because there's so many other vulnerable sites across Trinidad and Tobago. And I can't wait to chat with Tobago about it and see what we can do over there, as well as the rest of the Caribbean region. And I would encourage any other Caribbean country to reach out to us. We'd love to chat with you more how we can help.
0: All right. Awesome message. All right. What's next for you specifically?
14: Right now, our main focus is wrapping up some of the engagement. So our video of the entire project will come out soon by next month. So we're going to put that out there. I'm really excited to share the details of this project. And then the biggest thing for us for the rest of the year would be writing up these reports. So our vulnerability assessment reports, our conditions assessment reports, the conservation management frameworks, and of course the resilience and adaptation plans that we will hope to pass on to all of the stakeholders who have participated and shared information and helped. And We're going to make it very accessible, make sure it's on our websites for anyone to be able to access and read and share the information as well.
0: Kara, thank you for coming on and sharing your message. And I also want to acknowledge when I first got there, I screwed up. I was supposed to go on the Nelson Island tour, which I ultimately was able to do. But as a backup, you took me around to parts of the island and we got to see some really cool areas, the bamboo forest. And I want to thank you for being such a great presence at the conference and for kind of looking out for some of us there on the margins of the whole thing.
14: Oh, you're absolutely welcome. It was my pleasure. I love sharing Trinidad with people. We're such a wonderful, unique place, and I'm so glad you got to experience it.
0: Hey, Adapters. We're closing off this conference by catching up with Lisa Craig, and this is being recorded after the conference. We've had a chance to digest what occurred there. Hey, Lisa, welcome back.
1: Hey, thanks, Doug. It was a great time.
0: Yeah, it was a fantastic time. My first time in Trinidad and Tobago. And thank you for bringing me down and covering it with the podcast. All right, I've got some questions for you as a wrap up. From a 30,000 foot view, how do you think it went?
1: I think it was terrific. I learned so much. I met so many people that are engaged in this topic. And I think the interesting thing was all of the individuals that came from other Caribbean nations, we just had a great time talking about opportunities to work together in the future. And we got to hear their stories. We got to hear things about volcanoes, the impact of climate change and volcano eruptions and what that means to island communities. We got to hear about archaeology programs and education in secondary schools and the importance of training the new generation. We also got to hear a lot of best practices that are in place in islands all over the Caribbean, but beyond. Martin spoke quite a bit about what the State Department is doing to help support other communities who are trying to protect and prepare better for climate change and their cultural heritage sites. So great opportunity. And of course it was, was wonderful to enjoy the atmosphere of the environment, the Trinidadian people, very welcoming and very engaged in this topic. So rewarding, beneficial and important that we were there to share information with them.
0: So you talked about some of the highlights and some of the things that you learned. Did you notice a difference with the work that you do on adaptation of heritage sites in the US versus the Caribbean? Anything stand out?
1: Absolutely. And I knew a little bit about this before we got there, hence why we had brought David Guggenheim in, for example, to talk about natural heritage. There is an interrelationship between the environment and historic places. The importance of of going at midnight and seeing the sea turtles out there laying eggs. That is as important a cultural experience as what, you might find in one of the museums or cultural institutions there. The tie between natural heritage as a culturally significant component of the Trinidadian history was an important eye-opening experience for me. And of course, the built environment was very much at play as well, but in the sense of somewhere like Nelson Island. Which it was a very moving experience, a very isolating experience to understand the immigrant community, to understand those who were imprisoned there during the civil rights movement, and to know that both the built environment and that rock. Out there, really were interrelated in terms of the value and the story they told about the Trinidadian culture.
0: Well, I was able to do a couple field trips, and you and I got to go on that Nelson Island trip together. We had a very small group, we had a tour guide who worked there for the National Trust, and it was pretty amazing. I had no clue about the history of the islands, and I thought it was really interesting the Indian migration that happened in, in the middle of the 1800s. And it's this tiny little island that experienced so much. And what really stood out to me is it was actually making history, even relatively recently, the Black Power movement of the late 60s, early 70s. They had that movement in Trinidad and Tobago, too. We think of that just being a U.S. thing. And we got to go in and where people were kept in jails and just, yeah, it was fascinating that it was still, and I'm not weighing in one way or the other of what really was happening there, but it was just, it was being used in making history. I thought that was really fascinating.
1: Yeah, that story of immigration and isolation is something I know that they're going to build on. And and I think that's part of what we do in terms of our climate adaptation planning. I constantly look at opportunities for increasing public awareness, not just about the value of heritage, history, historic sites, but the impact of climate change on those resources. And that's why Nelson Island is a perfect example of how we need to find ways to adapt that island so that that story can continue to be told in a context of its environment and its buildings, its properties.
0: Just as an aside, I thought really cool as we took a boat out there and it was still relatively close to the mainland. You can see Venezuela from (laughs) Tobago. Like There's a peninsula that comes out and you're just looking over there like maybe eight, 10 miles away. It's like that's South America. So that was really cool. All right. For you, what kind of follow-up activities do you have planned after this conference? And, you know, I know the National Trust down there, they are very excited. They're looking forward to taking the information that they gleaned. What about you? And how do you see yourself fitting in, in all this?
1: Well, we are in the process of completing the resilience plan to give them some very specific adaptation approaches that really were developed by their community. And it's really important to make sure that people have the capacity. So the National Trust, what is their capacity to implement some of these changes, these adaptation strategies? A lot of young people were involved in our last workshop. So a lot of it will focus on public awareness education, programming, as well as some simple things that property owners can do to create greater resilience to basically reduce the risk of flooding and sea level rise. But I think what's even more important than that, Kara, who we really was our conference host there, she's gone off and spoken at a number of other workshops and conferences since then about her experience and she's really an ambassador Thank sure on this topic of climate change and its impact on island nations. So we can look to future young leaders like that to spread the word. But in the same time, I'm also talking with Martin and with Brent Fortenberry about doing some more work in some other Caribbean islands, as well as Hawaii. There's a really strong interest in some partners in Hawaii, particularly the Department of Defense, which is involved with, obviously, climate change adaptation and And needs to, for the security, for the national security, address that issue. I think that that's going to be an opportunity perhaps next year. Working with the Marshallese, Marshall Islands are significantly impacted by climate change. So we may just, you know, take this show on the road, so to speak, cross over the United States again and find ourselves uh, in Hawaii in 2024 doing something fairly similar.
0: And that needs to be captured in a podcast, if I may say <laughs> so myself. Okay, just to clarify why that you're having those conversations, but tell us a bit about, would this be, okay, Keeping History Above Water is, is almost this franchise. Would you use that format in a place like Hawaii? What's the future of Keeping History Above Water?
1: I think we're going to continue to build on what is really some strong elements of this conference. It's not one of those things where you go to a conference, you have a plenary, you break out in four or five different sessions. It's really everyone in a room for two days hearing some fascinating stories, whether they're big picture concerns about this changing climate and its impact on on the world, or whether they're simple stories being told by individuals who are property owners who were impacted by a major disaster that was climate related. What do we learn from those stories? And then how can we turn that into just best practices, case studies, examples that can be adopted by other communities in some simple ways or uh, some more complex ways, bringing all of These experts together after a while, they really can create opportunities and synergies to work to combat this issue in a way that is proactive, is happening today. You know, we're not just wringing our hands saying, whoa, me, the the climate is changing. We're coming with some solutions on how to adapt to these future conditions. I think we're going to see when we're in Hawaii a gathering again of Pacific Island nations, to learn from each other, to look at what Indigenous communities have done over decades or hundreds of years, in essence, bringing back those traditional practices, and then helping them understand that we are here to assist them as they go forward and to share our network of individuals and experts in this arena.
0: Okay, so let's just make it clear to my listeners though. So you've been involved with these Keeping History Above Waters and they do have their own origin. But if there's a community out there that thinks this is a great model for some of the work that they'd like to get involved in or they're just starting, they can reach out and maybe even be potential hosts for these efforts, right?
1: Absolutely. You know, our original founders of this format, the Newport Restoration Foundation has been very welcoming of any organization or community that wants to showcase good work that they have done in climate resilience, climate adaptation, or that have real need, bringing experts to their community and sharing information. But also we spend some time meeting with them and giving them ideas about how to move forward to create greater resilience in their communities. So absolutely an opportunity for anyone who wants to talk more about how to become much more resilient and keep that history above water.
0: I'm going to have a bunch of material in my show notes for this episode and the web page. But if people want to get in touch with you or learn more about what you're doing, what should they do?
1: Well, they can go to our website, which you'll have in your show notes, I'm sure, thecraiggrouppartners.com. Or they can contact me directly at lcraiggroup at com.
0: Excellent. All right, Lisa, thanks for partnering with America Dapps And thanks for being on the podcast.
1: Uh, thank you, Doug. Appreciate it.
0: Hey adapters, that is a wrap. But before we go, I wanted to share some final thoughts. This was my first time in Trinidad and Tobago, and let me tell you, it's a fascinating country. The history of immigration onto the island is truly remarkable, and it's led to a rich and diverse society. I thought the US was a melting pot, but Trinidad and Tobago takes it to a whole new level. The people I met were incredibly honest about the culture, both good and bad, but despite any flaws, they were proud of how well everyone gets along. I had such a great time, I want to give a big shout out to Lisa Craig and the Craig Group for sponsoring to cover the Keeping History Above Water Conference. Lisa is doing some amazing work with adaptation planning in local communities and it's always a treat to work with her. I also need to thank the fantastic team at the National Trust in Trinidad for helping me out with interviews and photos and making sure I had everything I needed. And a special thanks to Kara for all her efforts in this. If you're interested in learning more about any of the guests, check out my extensive show notes. And if you want to host a Keeping History Above Water Conference in your community, like Lisa mentioned, feel free to contact her or take a look at the show notes for more information. So as you heard, I partnered with the Craig Group in this episode to tell their adaptation story. Are you struggling to effectively communicate your climate adaptation story to the right audience? Are you finding that traditional methods such as webinars and white papers are not resonating with people and promoting your work effectively? If so, consider telling your story through a podcast. Sponsoring an episode of America Adapts is a great way to focus on the work you're doing and share it with climate professionals from around the world. I personally go on location to record sponsored podcasts, which allows for a diverse range of guests to participate. You'll work with me to identify experts who can represent the amazing work you're doing. And past partners have included Natural Resources Defense Council, University of Pennsylvania Warden, Wharton, World Wildlife Fund, UCLA, Harvard, and various corporate clients. By sharing your story with my listeners who are some of the most influential people in the adaptation space, you'll have the opportunity to reach a wider audience. Additionally, podcasts have a long shelf life, making them a valuable addition to your communication strategy. There's no better way to get your message about adaptation out to some of the most active and influential professionals in the world. Definitely check it out in my show notes. Also, if you're interested in having me keynote speak at your conference or corporate event, please reach out, folks. I speak a lot and you're going to enjoy it. I've been doing keynote presentations and they're a lot of fun. I share stories from the podcast. Podcast and my own experiences in adaptation. I will talk about it, adaptation in ways that it will motivate and inspire your audience. You can contact me at the website, americadaps.org. Okay, guys, before we wrap this up, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for a guest, let me know. If you had feedback on an episode, let me know. It is the highlight of my day when I get an email from someone listening to the podcast. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Send me an email. All right, stick around for the bonus material, a short interview with Mr. Carlos, who led my field trip to the mountains of Trinidad. In also a short story he shared with us. You are going to love Mr. Charles' storytelling gifts. Okay, Adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.
15: Hey, Adapters, I'm with Cornelius Felicia and Carlos. And I'm a tour guide at what you call Chenan Tobago. And we do tours, especially in that area of Paramin. Yeah. We are in Paramin at this point in time, so I'm using the Paramin platform for today. Okay, but we're supposed to call you Mr. Carlos, right? You're not supposed to call me Mr. Carlos. You, you have to call me Mr. Cornelius Felician, but Carlos as a nickname or what you call EKE or better known as.
0: Okay, can you briefly describe what are we seeing today? What is
15: this Torah about seeing Paramin? Okay, so you are invited here to Parliament to come to see a tour and we have about five different verse, five different stages of our tour. We use what you call history. So you're getting the feel of where we came from into the old to the modern. You're also coming here and you will be seeing what you call agriculture, which we are going to see now. You're also getting a panoramic view of the Caribbean seas, which will also give you what you call the diversity of, of the landscape and also geography wise. Then also to your learning one or two of the language, which is our language the main language is called quill or better known as patois, but we also speak english can you give us a few expressions we
0: went down and you were explaining patois and you were talking about how maybe a jamaican person might say something and there's this french background just give us some of those examples maybe some colorful language Okay,
15: so like say for instance The word patois It's a breakdown Of another language So when you go to Jamaica It will be a breakdown Of English So their English Will be saying like what But they will say war And things like that Or let us go They will say let we go But in Trinidad Our breakdown of the patois Is from the French So it's like me saying gade, It means look If I say Kavini, it means come If I say alle, it means go So basically our patois is of the French. So if I say, "Ou Belle Place," look a beautiful place. If I say, "Ou la look the ocean or look this ocean, um, the the seas. So Patwa is a breakdown from French. So if I say things like, uh, someone telling me farewell, I could say "Bon sorry at night, good night, or or say say in them um, of war. So it means the same as French.
0: So you deal with a lot of tourists who come to the island. What's one of the most surprising things that they th- learn about for Trinidad and Tobago?
15: Well, the, I think the one of the most surprising thing they learn from if they do come into a village like Paramin, or the clean, clear atmosphere and the panoramic views that we have. Sometimes some of them cannot believe as much as we are tropical, how cold we are at times, like right now, the time of the day is after 12, and you could actually feel the coolness. So they actually surprises certain things like that, and our contour of the road, where we are going to go now, where we'll be like driving on the back of a snake like and for you for persons it may be kind of like intimidating like scary but for us it's part of our life so they like really like whoa you all are really living in heaven because we are very 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 high where we are as we speak okay two things what's your
0: favorite spot on the island and what's your favorite food
15: my favorite spot is where I'm standing right now at this point in time. It's called Paramin, better known as La Vigie Lookout. One of my favorite food is normally my favorite food is called Pilau and I will eat pilau over any other, but I will breach up to my breakfast, which is a good coconut beak or roast beak and buljoil or better known as saltfish.
0: Okay, and you said something very special about the spot we're on. We have this ridiculously beautiful view and you said people down in the city talk about how special this area is. What did you say that happens here?
15: Well, I will say definitely because sometimes if you are a very relaxed person or you're a person of of, of in deep thoughts, here is a place will be very lovely for you because you will come here by just sitting here, you feel a difference in your pause. Feeling close, um, deep soul-searching, things that you may want to do that you cannot do in the city, less noise, the place is so tranquil. Then you get to hear birds, parrots, even seeing the little mutt. So here brings back to you to grounded, to get you like, whoa, we are not alone. We are existing with others, and it is so magnificent. So these are the kind of things that will capture persons who want that world. Other persons who don't want that world, they will be in that world. This world don't matter to them. But if you are a person of nature, someone who likes scenery, someone who wants to relax, who wants to go into, as I use the word, deep thoughts, you will prefer to come here because I have seen many persons of the different religions, such as Muslim, coming here to do their prayers in the evening when the sun is going to bed.
0: Is there an ever a situation where you're not talking to people?
15: No, I always speak to people because I think, I think I have a gift when it comes to speaking. I just like speaking. One of the things I noticed lately is that I speak a little too much because I run out of time, <laughs> but I am grateful for it anyway. No, we
0: don't think so. You've been a wonderful tour guide. It's been fantastic. And thanks for uh, being on the podcast.
15: Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And I will say it in my local twang. I will say it in my local twang to you. So I say, um, Merci appeal. Merci pile, Monsieur. Thank you very much for coming. This
16: lady watching a laugh. Donkey. Long time ago, everybody knew what a donkey was. And donkey is still my favorite animal. animal. Donkey is very, very, very extremely intelligent. It's just yeah, we, right. as people, very, very mean. So master, coming home a day in January month, on his arm has a little piglet walking, and the piglet on his hand, January month, and hitting donkey, a slap every time, a little rope, come on, donkey, come on. Come on, donkey, come on. Come on, donkey, come on. And donkey walking in front, and little piglet on his hand, watching that happening. So when Master reached home. Three months later, little pig could walk, and he could talk. So Piggy went up by donkey eating it grass and saying donkey donkey you remember me Mm. you were here when i come home you only carry my food why are you carrying food from me and you eating grass donkey Mm. donkey was like piggy take time santa coming Uh donkey went and eat his grass three months later piggy come back (laughs) it's july month Piggy feel he could talk now, he's bigger. Fact. So he walking up to Donkey now. Donkey! Donkey! Why are you always eating grass? But you're bringing food for me. Mm. Pork and chicken say, you're stupid. You're always bringing food for me and he and we to eat, but you're eating a set of grass. Mm. Donkey say, take time, Piggy. Santa, come now. <laughs> Piggy no nothing. Month of October each, Pig get bigger as you're using my terminology, he get more bullfacer. Wow. So Mr. Pig walk up to Donkey. Donkey! Donkey! And he start Rick. to snut now. <laughs> donkey! <laughs> what's wrong with you? Everybody on the farm say you is a jackass. Ooh. They say you is a real ass because you're bringing food for me to eat. You're bringing food for massa. You're bringing food for cock, chicken, everybody, duck. I mean, but you're eating the a set of grass. <laughs> donkey say. Take oh. time. We're in the month of, sorry, we're in the month of the bars. Soon, we went back. December, around the 22nd somebody. Piggy come up now. Bigger, more facer. He woke up to Donkey, snorted. Donkey, look at me. I'm here only 11 months. Master gave me what I want. I have my own pool. All the animals say you're the biggest ass on the farm. you eating a set of grass, grass donkey turn around and ball soon we are in the month santa piggy piggy go back three days later donkey here he balling master pull you up on the, the knife on the showed pig dead donkey sat the ball. ah he more he more he more he more he more yale yale donkey watch 40 pig dead 40 pig make ham and don't kiss the little grass. <laughs> <laughs> Let don't kiss the grass and leave him alone. Quick,
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh, quick. <laughs> 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 <laughs>